1: This is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Thanks so much to Kate McCann for looking after the podcast on Friday. Coming up this week, it is Food Week. All week on my Times Radio show, you can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 to 1 day. Radio smart speaker app. You know that. All this week, we are doing Food Week. We did Food Week last year. We thought it was a brilliant idea. We spent a long time trying to think of something else to do and ended up concluding that Food Week was the best thing to do. So all this week, we are going to look at some of it's going to be fun and some of it's going to be serious. We'll look at the politics of the nanny state and whether or not the government Should tell you what you can put in your shopping trolley. We will speak to the chef who cooks at prime ministers and world leaders at checkers. And we'll have the art of the political lunch with Tim Shipman discussing that. Yes over lunch. But coming up on today's episode, 250 years of feeding politicians. The canteens, the restaurants, the cost, the chef shortage in Parliament. Yeah, but we're heading to Parliament to talk about how MPs and peers and staff and the 18,000 people who work in and around Parliament get fed. It's about fun about that in just a moment. But all this week we are asking the big divisive questions which split the country down the middle. The big food fight questions. Today we've asked tea or coffee? You Gov have polled it for us 47% said tea 42% said coffee uh, and 10% said neither well we were asking listeners to send them what they thought and I caught up with my old mate Tom Allen the comedian Tom Allen who presents or has presented just about every food show on telly I caught up with him he's in for Chris Evans on Virgin today him and newsreader Sinead to ask them the big food fight question tea or coffee tea coffee Wow! Well, See, so oh, split that's down the huge. middle. Well, the country is split down the middle. That's true, isn't it? Forty-seven percent tea, forty-two percent coffee. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Uh, that's uh, there's that still true. if you there's still some people po- missing there. <laughs> there's if you there's that- ten percent, ten percent neither. Oh, are those weird people who don't like hot drinks?
2: If you did that poll in Ireland, I tell you what the result would be: hundred percent tea. Barry's tea. Barry's
1: tea. Mm, I can imagine. Yeah. Do you know what tea? Very, very popular with the young people. 18 to 24-year-olds, 52%. I thought they were all Gosh, drinking like no, oat latte. It's
2: not going to be like a builder's tea, is it? That's going to yes. be like, nah, like fancy, like, rose. Also,
0: what 18 to 24-year-olds respond to a survey? Not being funny, Matt. Not to question the <laughs> whole system. Don't undermine the but system. But like, <laughs> what? Do they even pick up? They wouldn't pick up a phone. They wouldn't have a phone. So, you don't
2: do surveys on
1: phones. 18 to 24-year-olds we're talking about. not, are not like 8-year-olds. No, I know, but who's got... <laughs> I think 18-year-olds have got phones. Them? How is
3: this poll done? That's I'm saying. They're done online. They're, they're done, on the internet. done online. I, I think the young inter- people are on the all internet. Oh, young people like the internet. Don't yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: Do let me know what you think, tea or coffee. You can email me matt at times.radio. Right, now it's time for The Columnists. The Columnists on Times Radio. And as usual on a Monday, we are joined by Libby Purvis. Hello, Libby. Hello. And no uh waste of today, but joining me in the studio is Ian Martin. Hello, Ian. Hello, good morning. Uh, let's let's tackle our our big our big political question of the day then. Tea or coffee, Ian?
4: Uh, neither. There's nothing so boring as someone who's given up caffeine, but I'm now completely caffeine free. So chamomile tea, a bit, and some decaf coffee, but it's I got caffeine out of my life. Why? Um I just sort of I, I Having smoked a lot, actually, you know, and given up smoking, I realised that I was probably addicted to double espresso. Oh. And just decided to give it a go and feel um, virtuous, actually, and really smug. (laughs) (laughs) A smug Times columnist, I find that very hard to believe. Uh, Libby, tea or coffee?
5: Oh, it's a bit like saying democracy or a health service. You know, you actually need both. But I was very <laughs> pleased to hear about the um, Chinese ladies who like half and half tea and coffee. Because in the army, um, a World War II veteran told me that his barracks, there was this terrible machine which um, uh, which produced something they called teacofco, which was basically, it didn't taste like tea or coffee or cocoa, but it was a hot drink. Um, and uh, it was the can. That's what the canteen gave them, and that's what they heard. Well, go.
1: That sounds, that does sound revolting. Um, so, uh, tea, you're in the 10% who say neither, are you?
4: Yeah. I in mean, the, if you bowl, fo- if did. you force me to choose, I would say coffee. That gives you a proper kick.
1: So, 47% say tea, 42% say coffee, 10% say neither. Um, but interestingly, young people much higher on the tea front. I thought they were all drinking, like, you know lattes <laughs> flat whites aren't they um uh remainers more likely to say them, coffee leavers more on. likely to say tea go on libby
5: well a lot of them are like ian and they they drink uh, they drink sort of chamomile tea which sadly i mean it does smell like cat wee but you know all <laughs> each to his own
1: well we'll come back to that in a minute we have going to hear from uh Somebody from Weetabix a bit later on to get their take on the the big food issues of the day. Uh, Let's talk politics now, and there is still a bit of it around. Uh, Rishi Sunak, a hive of activity, presumably before he goes on holiday, uh, which is always what Prime Ministers do, uh, announcing new licences for oil and gas extraction in the North Sea, uh, saying he wants to... uh, The move will help secure Britain's energy supply. but climate experts and opposition parties have questioned how it fits in with the idea of trans... Positioning to net zero by 2050. Is this the right thing to be doing here?
4: Yeah, I mean, we can discuss why he's doing it, and it's to create some dividing lines with Labour, isn't it, post the the by-election. and I know the EULA scheme is not directly to do with climate change, but it's an environmental policy that um, is deemed by the Tories to be unpopular in London. So, look, he's 20 points behind in the polls, and he's trying to find something which can create a clear divide with um, Labour, hence he's supporting the motorists. He's all over the front page of the Sun this morning. And it's it's a determined attempt. But in amongst all that, I have to praise him on the basis that I think, as you know, that the current net zero timetable and policy, I do think we should move to cleaner energy, but it's going to take a very long time. I think the current framework and deadlines are completely mad. So anything which uh, is more realistic and rebalances our energy system and a commitment to more um, to, to, to more uh, drilling licenses and using the resources which remain which will run out in the north sea is is sensible in terms of energy security
1: isn 't there an argument though that the whole the reason you have Ambitious targets and deadlines is because if you don't, there's always another reason to have another round of
4: yeah, but politi-
1: licenses and get round to it later.
4: But politicians are always doing that, and then by the time it turns out to be wrong, everyone involved is in the House of Lords, <laughs> and then you have to have a public inquiry on why Britain's <laughs> energy policy didn't work. And it just it it seems it, it, it I'm not I'm not a I'm not a climate change denier. Um, the climate's clearly changing, but it would be mad for Britain to. Undermine its economy to the extent that it seems likely to over the course of the next 10, 20 years um, in return for something which will likely not make that much difference. I mean, the reality is a brilliant piece yesterday by Sam Bowman in the Sunday Times. Sam's not a climate change denier either, but the basic reality is British industry is paying about double for electricity what US industry is paying. So while people are saying, well, where's the growth in the economy? Um, Help, uh, that's what businesses dealing with. So do you want energy security and uh, affordable energy and plentiful energy balanced with a longer term transition to um, to clean energy? Yes, but you, it, I, I think it, that we're overdue politicians sort of telling us the balanced truth about, uh, about the realities.
1: What do you think, Libby, uh, literally as we're talking, my inbox is filling up with people saying, uh, think tank says the government's pulling fuel on the fire while the world burns somebody else says it's totally at odds with global boiling um is it is it rising to the challenge of climate change or is it just the economic reality is uh is he
5: well there are other realities such as the fact that we're a drop in the global ocean china has 35 times more um emissions than us and they're increasing but what I think is really interesting is that gradually the penny is dropping politically that the net zero severity falls most heavily on the poorest mm-hmm. both in terms of restriction and indeed of public criticism and Camilla Long put a finger I think it was Camilla yesterday on the um, the fact that it seems to be okay for Guardian and Liberal columnists to have houses in France but it's not okay for Joe Bloggs to take his kids on an all inclusive to Marbella you know and the, the the EULES the thing was fascinating because that does fall heavily on people who have got leased already. And I think politicians need to take that into account. And I think in a way the, the target setting always sounds fantastic and makes us seem good. The, a bitter irony is that if, if only we were still in Europe, sort of great big pan-European plans which would make more difference globally. Uh, could be put together but we're just sort of out on our own in this tiny little island making everybody uh, who is poorest even poorer and more miserable in the interests of a target we're probably not going to meet
1: anyway is there not a case um in that actually if we showed some international leadership that if we were doing it and then you mm. maybe persuade america to you know and then the west and then you know that brings down the cost of everything, and then China might end up doing it because it's economically sensible.
4: Or the Blair argument uh, last week, which is is plausible yeah. that there is a there's a leadership um, case to be made for it in that, in terms of helping with uh, finance, helping the developing world transition. There's a point there, but I think it is uh, relatively marginal compared to the big fundamental economic truths about why we're not growing. It's not just because of energy costs. It's also to do with um, um, with building and blocking on, or lack of building and, and blocking on planning um, and low productivity that results. But energy is a big factor. And it's just, this, since the Industrial Revolution, it's pretty clear that cost of energy and availability of energy influences how you can innovate and grow. And yeah. we're having a one-sided uh, conversation because we've all watched too many David Attenborough <laughs> movies and of course people are very concerned about what's, mm. what's happening. But describing it as global burning and being hysterical about it rather than trying to be calm and find reasonable, balanced solutions to it I think is, is unhelpful. It also risks a political backlash... From the kinds of voters that you mentioned, and there's a an echo of Brexit. there. But
1: then again, it was all about then about goes back to leadership, doesn't it? If you want to do this, and you have to take people with you rather than this sort of feeling that's being imposed.
4: Well, you do. And Chris yeah. Skidmore, uh, the government's net zeros are said a couple of weeks ago or last week. Um, there needs to be a cross party consensus on this. Now, what that means is essentially there should be no debate. <laughs> now, we've seen what, what happened with the Brexit issue. When you get into that situation yeah. and you say this is beyond the... Both parties are agreed there is a position. You're not going to be asked for your views on this because mm. you can't possibly understand it. You're just expected to pay the bill. What could possibly go wrong? Well, in fact, Frank texted in
1: saying this dash, dash to net zero is so important. It affects everyone in this country in one way or another and it should be put to a proper referendum, which is obviously, you know, that's a view that's been pushed by uh, Nigel Farage and others. Uh, another message from Tony in London says Libby Purvis of Prime Minister now.
5: but ian ian the um the the business of tony blair and leadership and us showing international leadership you can't show leadership if your own people aren't following you
1: yeah i yeah that's a good point um let's move on because i want to uh, ask about a couple of other things um ministers want gps to avoid sick notes and refer people to life coaches uh instead rather than just signing them off sick is that going to work libby
5: well, it's true that work does make people more likely to get over their depression and anxiety, where you have now, as we are told we have, an enormous number of people out of work, not because there's anything at all physically wrong with them, but because their mental health has declined because they, they are depressed or they suffer from a lot of anxiety and then things make them nervous. And so we obviously do need... Um, you know, people to be helped to get back into work somehow. I was interested in the leader today saying that actually occupational health is at a very low level. You know, we don't have enough uh, no, employers are not doing enough to make sure that people are not becoming depressed anxious, miserable and getting sick notes um, and it seems to me that the small and medium sized businesses um, you know, which can't have their own sort of enormous departments you know, should be far more able to refer people to help, the kind of occupational help you might get in a big company which values its people. So there's a lot to be done there, but I'm not sure the words life coaches are going to encourage many people. I think they will annoy more people than they encourage.
4: I think it's a a really good idea, actually, and all all the evidence from the last time that Britain uh, did this, which is in the 90s and early 2000s. I mean, Britain has a record of doing this 20, 30 years ago when you had the hangover from uh, large-scale unemployment and long-term economic inactivity. You had welfare reform um, began under the Tories, but was accelerated under under Labour, which was about getting the long-term inactive people back into work and boosting confidence. And one of the findings I remember at the time was that GPs, not a criticism of all GPs, but the GPs might, some might be tempted to just issue the sick note rather than someone, I don't think the term life coach existed in the 1990s, but an advisor mm. trying to be helpful in terms of building confidence and training for interviews and social skills. That was more useful than just going to the doctor and being signed and being signed off repeatedly. So I think it is. Um, it's, it's interesting. It's an area where we're, there's a bit of despair about it in the political class or in the media debate. But Britain was very, very good at this sort of stuff um, within living memory.
1: And it's that whole thing, isn't it, about being. If you're you're more likely to get a job if you're in a job. You know that whole thing about being close to the workforce. And once you get signed off for. Weeks or months, it just puts that distance. Yes, which makes the whole process. You, employers will look less generously towards you, and you'll feel less inclined.
4: Yes, and yeah. so social skills atrophy, and yeah. and all, all, all of that. Yeah. It's Matt Shorty on
1: Times Radio. Goodbye! One, two, one, two, three. So as part of Food Week, we have been talking food fights and tea and coffee. We found out what Libby and Ian thought. Torian Lib Dem voters prefer tea. Labour supporters split down the middle. Remainers prefer tea. Leavers ditch the leaves in favour of coffee. Women are more likely to prefer tea than coffee. Uh, perhaps the most surprising is how unpopular coffee is with Gen Z. Just 29% of 18 to 25 year olds prefer the strong stuff, with more than half favouring tea. Well, someone who knows a lot about breakfasts is Lorraine Rothwell, head of brand at Weetabix. Morning, Lorraine. Good morning. So, I mean, first question tea or coffee?
2: tea (laughs) why uh do you know i just don't like the taste of coffee i like the smell uh but the taste just does not do it for me um i think growing up in the northeast of england um we had tea bags delivered in fact my mum still gets her tea delivered um door to door so we were always a family of tea drinkers so that's just stuck with me
1: now why does weetabix keep finding itself in the middle of food controversies (laughs)
2: Um, because we love to have a debate with our fans who are very opinionated about the different ways you can eat Weetabix and are always sharing new sometimes quite weird often quite (laughs) wonderful ways of serving um, our favourite biscuits. I'm going to ask
1: you in a sec for some of the weirdest Ian how do you have your Weetabix?
4: (laughs) Um, very straightforward with milk. I mean, I am a Weetabix fan. Very good. Addict, L- addict. Addict, yes, yeah. yeah, Replace your... <laughs> Replace okay. my coffee
1: addiction with Weetabix. <laughs> have you got, like, a Weetabix strapped to your arm at uh, all times? Yeah. Uh, Libby, how do you like your Weetabix?
5: <laughs> I don't like Weetabix. <laughs> don't say <laughs> that to the <laughs> coconut matting. I will find some coconut matting and chew on it.
1: Right, cut off. I'm sorry about that, um, <laughs> uh So, Luane, tell me some of the weird things that people have put uh, on their Weetabix.
2: Um, Well, something I find quite weird, having never done it, but actually seems quite normal for a lot of people, is to just spread butter onto them and eat them as if you were eating a piece of toast. Um, And I guess building on from that, something that really exploded a couple of years ago was having beans on Wheatabix. So the Wheatabix replaces the toast and people went crazy (laughs) about that a couple of years ago. Have you tried that, Lorraine? um i've obviously tried it for the benefit of the job i won't say that it's something
1: that's in my Libby, maybe maybe that's where you've gone wrong you need to put baked beans on your weetabix
5: Uh, i don't know i don't know what next sort of sprinkles there's hundreds and
2: thousands that might be good
5: yeah can Uh, you put anything
1: sweet on your weetabix for me
2: yeah, um, lots of people do put wheat, uh, sugar on their Weetabix. Um I personally like putting a sprinkling of cinnamon on mine. Oh, posh. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but, like, could you, could you have custard custard on your Weetabix? Yeah,
2: absolutely. You can have anything. I mean... Um, People will use Weetabix as an ingredient in, in recipes. So we've even gone so far as people crumbling Weetabix and using it as a coating on chicken portions, for example, and having it as a, as a main meal.
1: Well, I feel like I've learned something today. Um, Whether or not I'm going to make use of it, I don't know. Uh, Lorraine Rothwell, thanks so much for that. Head of brand at Weetabix. Uh, We also had uh, Ian Martin and uh, Libby Purse. Of course, you can read them both in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk and sign up right now. Up next, we're going eating in Parliament. It's that time of the year
2: To get started, visit plushcarecom loss. That's plushcarecom loss.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
1: You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. What's an MP eat? With over 20 places to buy food and drink across the House Department, there's plenty of choice. So, in a moment, we're going to hear about the history of trying to feed politicians. But first, let me take you through the menu. Yeah, I've been down in Parliament's... Having a look at what was on offer, the adjournment restaurant shut. Join the research. You get steak and fries there for thirteen pounds twenty. Burger for ten pound four p. Very weirdly specific menu, uh, prices. A pizza for six pound forty four. Chicken Caesar salad ten pound forty five. Uh, the debate, which is more of a sort of canteen setup, you get jerk pork and rice for three pound fifty. Honey and sesame seed halloumi on toasted pizza for four ninety five. The stranger's bar, where you can you obviously can go and buy a pint if you want to, now selling a sort of Mr. Whippy soft serve ice cream for £2.25 with a flake in it. At uh, the Terrace Cafeteria where I went for my lunch last week jerk pork, £4.40 codfish finger bap down there, something, something to do with tofu which I wasn't interested in. Uh, for bu- they were doing bumper breakfast, Belgian waffles on a Monday, avocado on sourdough, toast on a Tuesday, grilled boneless kippers on a Wednesday, uh, Mexican style scrambled eggs on a Thursday, American style buttermilk pancakes on a Friday all very tasty. But food has been served up now in Parliament for 250 years. So what we thought we'd do is take a look at the history of what's been on offer, who cooks it, who eats it, and what difference does it make to politics? I'm joined in the studio by two historians from the House of Parliament. I'm really excited about this, uh, Dr. Mari Takayanagi? Yanagi. Yes. Yanagi, almost here. Almost sorry. Very good. And Elizabeth Hallam-Smith is here. Well, good morning. Nice Hi. to see you both. So um, let's go right the way back then. Why? What, what is it? What is? What started happening 250 years ago for us to mark this this historical moment?
6: So, in 1773, the House of Commons asked John Bellamy to set up a kitchen and refreshment rooms in the House of Commons because although there were eating outlets, uh, they weren't particularly close and they needed somewhere really close to the House of Commons chamber where members could just pop in and out between divisions and so on. So, Bellamy set up um, Bellamy's Cafeteria, as it was then known, and there's still a Bellamy's Cafeteria today, of course.
1: But it's very different. Today, Today it's a sort of, I would say, smart motorway services vibe in that you go along and you get your own food yeah, off okay. with your tray and all that and then you pay at the tip at the end what would it have been like 250 years ago
6: so um i think liz helen smith oh yes uh, I... Liz, let's go on yeah let's transport ourselves back
3: oh yes yeah, please should we, we go back let's to the go back um around eight,
7: well let's go around to just before the fire around um, 1830 okay so you've got the commons jammed up in a really tiny chamber you've got the members. Um, having really, really long hours desperate for food and drink cooked really, really fast so they're all rushing up the stairs to this very, very small room and they're fed fast food so it is cooked on a gridiron there's steaks, there's lamb chops there's veal pasties, there's cold beef there's pickles and there's very fine Stilton cheese
1: that oh, all sounds delicious. they not a million miles away from the sort of things which are on offer now.
7: <laughs> if you want to pay um, three and six, that's that what pretty, that's, that's what you would pay. If you wanted to pay one and six, you could get either beer and a sandwich or tea and sandwich. And you can also get sandwich and toast and tea or coffee. And they so liked like meal both. deals? They, they liked, were, doing, they meal were deals. doing meal deals. The whole thing was the whole thing was around meal deals. But what happened then? They were all sitting around these tables, and it was MPs. It was peers as well. Yeah, um, up to the eighteen forties. So, and it was their guests. When the division bell went, they all rushed down the stairs. This is when there's a vote. Come, yes, so the, when bell goes a, off. the The division bell went. They all rushed downstairs, the and then they came back up again. And it became a really important part of the political culture because it was the only place where they could eat. Um, Did they just leave in, their food within, there, within, knowing
1: within. it was going to be there waiting for them when they got back? It was still there when they, <laughs> co- it was
7: still there when they got back. But it was a really key part of their political culture and it became really, really important as a place to do political business so it does um, exercise a huge grip over the imagination of generations of MPs. It's a really, really famous place.
1: And it's because it's, it's that thing where we see the um, MPs, you know, they say when they go to vote in the division lobbies, that's the time where they can buttonhole a minister or it's those small social interactions which happen over a lamb chops and a beer or, or whatever.
6: Yeah, so um, one of the reasons that Bellamy's, the old Bellamy's, is so famous is because it was written about by Charles Dickens. Yes. So Charles Dickens was a parliamentary reporter. We think of him as a novelist today, but of course he used to write sketches for newspapers and particularly he wrote a couple of parliamentary sketches. And although, of course, he looked at the chamber and what was happening in the members' lobby, but he wrote a whole sketch about Bellamy's and he particularly focused on the food, which you've talked about just then, but also the staff. Um, And he talked um, uh, about two staff who we remember to this day um, because Dickens immortalised them and they were... Uh, old Nicholas the butler and Jane the hebe, the goddess of Bellamy's and it's uh, it's Jane that uh, Liz and I have particularly researched um, for our book about women's staff in Parliament um, but uh, old Nicholas was a stalwart of um, uh, Bellamy's, he wore black, he wore a white collar, he was known as an expert in cheese and many other things and, um, and Jane was there serving the members, Jane was a, a nickname um, because there was a lot of I think banter going on possibly between the politicians, the journalists, the visitors, between uh, Jane and and other waitresses and cooks, and so it was best perhaps to be known as a pseudonym. But her actual name was Elizabeth Faville, as we've discovered from our research for our book. Um, And so Nicholas and Jane run the place between them for decades, um, from the uh, early 1800s uh, right through until Bellamy gets closed down in 1851.
1: And it's interesting, that whole... Because, you know, I remember, particularly when I first started working in Parliament, there was still the press bar, and Clive was the barman behind the bar, of the press bar. And he knew everyone... And he knew everything. He was following what was happening in politics because from there he'd have to know, oh, are we going to be busy? Are there going to be late nights and all that? But also just knowing... The life stories of the of the regulars and the people that came in, which Nicholas and Jane must have mm. known everything that was happening in politics.
6: I think that's true. And the other the other reason that Bellamy's is known today is because of the dying words of Pitt the Younger, the Prime Minister, um, who is supposed to have said one of two things on his deathbed. He may have said, "I love my country," um, or he may have said, um, "I think I could eat one of Bellamy's meat pies." And I think wow. that I think that really um, hooks into what Liz was saying about the culture um, of the place that it was so embedded into the culture. That it wasn't just um, that um, Pitt the Younger he was dying from an ulcer and um, wasn't able to eat very much but when he uh, apparently so legend tells it at least he decided it was actually a Bellamy's meat pie and so a messenger (laughs) was was sent to get one
1: Was that a story put about by the uh, by old Nicholas and Jane by chance? Well
6: I think (laughs) absolutely but it was it was then told by Disraeli so so it was passed on to politicians That's a good source Yeah absolutely
1: Then Elizabeth what happened then when you mentioned about the fire obviously Parliament uh caught fire what impact did that then have on you know and then there was a process of rebuilding it and so on on the on the social social life around food amongst politicians
7: well burmese was a tremendous survivor because um the um the, the housekeeper john bellamy was a was an extremely canny operator and he soon got it up and running so as soon as the temporary houses of parliament started operating again bellamy started working again but it had to move around a lot during the rebuilding, and if we fast forward a bit um, to about 1840, we find it in the most peculiar circumstances. Because on the one hand, it is famed um, to the radicals as 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 a really um, almost an emblem of what's wrong with the political system. They think it's incredibly far far too influential, and it's built up in in, in as a really sort of major issue for them but if you actually go into Bellamy's it's lodged in this really drafty porter cabin right in the middle of the building site it's actually situated where the old house of commons had been (laughs) so Jane and Nicholas are presiding Jane's actually cooking her steaks and chops in exactly the same place that the speaker's chair had been wow And next door, there is the infamous Commons Bog House, which would be a completely different show for you, I think, Um, (laughs) um, which is known to have overflowed during the building works. And then next to that is a giant chimney puffing out smoke um, and a huge steam engine running the experimental heating systems for the temporary chambers. So they're right in the middle of this building site in the most unpleasant circumstances. I was going
1: to say, a, a, a cacophony of a smells. A
7: cacophony of smells, shops, toilets, and sounds. chimneys. But yet, this is the place. And in fact, it's reckoned that the Commons in its temporary chamber rescheduled its business to make sure that the most boring business took place over the dinner hour. Yes. Which, so that, so that. 'Cause everyone went off to Bellamy's for politics.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And then what happened what happened then to Jane and Nicholas?
6: So, um, uh, uh, Nicholas retires and uh, Jane tries to influence the building of the new kitchens in the Palace of Westminster. So, there's a committee set up to build new kitchens, to get out of this terrible um, temporary accommodation that Liz has just been talking about. And so, she gives evidence to a House of Commons committee via her manager. By this point, it's uh, Edmund Bellamy, another member of the family. And she specifies that it has to be simple, it has to be quick, there have to be sort of the grid irons and to cook the steaks and so on. And they completely ignore it all because um, the, they've got their eye on greater things they want sort of fine dining they want soups they want stews sort of things that uh, such a kitchen wasn't set up to provide and so uh, very unfortunately Bellamy's is shut down they sell off all the kitchen equipment um but Jane lingers on because uh, the reporters still talk about her in the um sort of decade after she's uh, supposed to have left they talk about her still being lurking around the building fat and 40s rather sadly she's described as so still legendary I think
1: and you've got uh, an account book from Bellamy's is that right in the archive
7: in the Parliamentary archives, yes. This, yes, it's a remarkable survival because as the flames were engulfing the building, the waiting staff all ran out. This is, this is 16th, 17th of October, 1834. They all ran out of the building and the waiting staff lost their uniform, but they obviously snatched the wages book <laughs> as they went out because it's really, you know, it's re- really um, very, very badly burnt on the corner. But the reason I think they thought it was really important to keep... Um, was, was because the Bellamys were very, very good and meticulous managers who cared about their staff, and it lists them all and all their wages. So it's really part of their accounting system.
1: Um, and you've still got that to We've to still earth. got it.
7: It's a remarkable survival because we can actually track all the waiting staff by name. Oh,
1: of course, And yeah, that's yeah. how we
7: know they use nicknames, because they uh, called the one name, and then, the and then they, also, they also give the nickname, but the nickname's changed as well. One thing we haven't mentioned is the cats. Oh. <clears throat> so
1: they didn't eat those, did they?
7: They didn't eat them. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what were the cats doing? Well, cats, the cats at the marsh, presumably, which cat, is still a to this day. Yeah. Well,
7: the cats um, at this time lived mainly in the wine cellar below Bellamy's, um, where John Bellamy kept his fine wines, which he served to the members. Yeah. But the waitresses were very keen on, on adopting them. Waitresses and the waiting staff lived in the attics at the top. So they have their pet cats, and there's a famous occasion where one of the MPs, in a drunken rage, slays one of the cats. And this is, uh, you know, written up quite widely, and it it sort of assumes legendary proportion because Bellamy's becomes a a place of heightened reality.
1: (laughs) And, and it was that's all, what you get. it was all about the cats. And it's all about the food. And was, food, yeah. food and politics goes together yeah. so, uh, so closely. Well, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming in. Myron Elizabeth, and the book, Necessary Women, the untold story of Parliament's working women, is available now. And it tells the stories of exactly some of the people we were talking about. Lovely to see you both. Now, we've just been hearing about uh, how Parliament started feeding MPs and peers 250 years ago. Now, let's find out what it's like to eat in Parliament today. I caught up with the Conservative MP, Charles Walker, who chairs Parliament's Administration Committee, which oversees all of the eateries on the parliamentary estate. He told me what the job involves.
3: We take a keen interest in their performance um, and we're sort of the interface between the service providers and um, parliamentary oversight by elected members of Parliament.
1: And when it comes to the catering in Parliament, whenever we discuss this, people will, will message in and say... Uh, well, it's all subsidised. They shouldn't be having anything subsidised. The, the latest figures that have just come out this month show that uh, in 2022, 23, the cost of catering, are, you know, the net cost of it was £6.4 million. That's, That is down. During the pandemic, it got to about £9 million, obviously, because the, there were fewer people there. But it's still well up on pre-pandemic levels of 2 or £3 million. Pounds. So what, why is it so, that the cost of, of serving food costs the taxpayer so much?
3: So the House of Commons feeds or potentially the Palace of Westminster, of which obviously the House of Commons is only half, but there are about 18,000 pass holders. So we're basically meeting the needs each day ourselves and catering service in the House of Lords of 18,000 pass holders, of which as you know, 650 members of Parliament, 350, for example, a member of the uh, press lobby. There are many thousands of House staff. And of course... P- house of commons operates through the night you have security people there through the night you have people working through the night on keeping the keeping the building up and running and so there is a cost attached to that of keeping services open to support them in addition since the uh, pandemic we've been able to do less commercial catering um, that's still still not back at a level where it was and that used to or does generate revenue to fund other catering services or offset the cost of other catering services,
1: and that's sort of outside, I don't know, a charity dinner or a, or an industry body that wants to come in and hire a yeah. room and, and and lay on food, and it's interesting that still yeah. hasn't got yet back to pre-pandemic levels.
3: Yeah, no, not not yet. Um, and there are also there are also issues about staff recruitment as well in 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 the catering department. We're short of chefs, for example, because there is a very tight market for chefs in London. And uh, we're we're short of chefs by about 38, I think, at the last count. So there's less we can do.
1: Wow. So if anyone's interested in in becoming a chef in in Parliament, that's a that sounds like a a great job. And I suppose the other point is that it fluctuates a lot. Like you said, although there are 18,000 pass holders, you know, one day uh, there'll be thousands and thousands of people there. And then, you know, now we're into recess. I, I was in the, the canteen the other day and, you know, there's there's hardly anyone around, but you still need the kitchens and the staff yeah. and, and all of that.
3: And that's a really good point. So there are obviously peaks and troughs in demand. So uh, when the house is sitting as you say Matt there's there's quite a lot of people there and when it's not sitting there's quite a few less although there's still still many thousands and and what do you
1: make of the food that's on offer you know the the slight perception the public might have sometimes there's all foie gras and lobsters all around um a lot of it's pretty routine sort of work canteen grub
3: i think we have excellent food and we have excellent staff serving that food we have as I've said, really, really committed chefs. I wish we had a few more of them. We have wonderful staff working in our catering outlets and um, they do a fantastic job. Yeah, the food, I've never seen a lobster in the House of Commons. I'd love to one day, but I haven't seen one yet. <laughs> um, so, but they do a really good job and um, wholesome filling food. And it's, look, I, I, I'm, I'm always impressed by the, their cheery nature, their professionalism, um, and the dedication to their to their work, so I have absolutely no complaints. But it is it is a lot of it is canteen cafeteria food, as, as you know. Um, I don't know if you
1: saw this the other day. Uh, Keir Starmer was on a food podcast, and he was discussing the food in Parliament. And he was a little bit sniffy about it. He said you couldn't find a, a decent salad anywhere.
3: Oh, I think there's lots of good salads in, in mm. Parliament. But he's very busy, Keir Starmer, and I appreciate that. So <laughs> he probably doesn't he, no, I, I seriously he probably doesn't you know, he probably he, has to go to one or two of the outlets. He
1: probably doesn't venture up to the Lord's oh. Lords ca- Cafeteria very often because they've got a very good salad bar up there.
3: There are uh, you can get salad in the House of Commons, but yeah. I shall I shall look he's a customer, isn't he? Yeah. So if he's got concerns about <laughs> not being able to get salad, that's something that we will we will look into because we want people to be able to have a, a healthy choice and and eat well for their heart and so on and so forth so that i don't take that as a criticism from Keir starmer <laughs> we're here to react on on feedback so i'll take a look at that
1: good one for the one for the uh the comments book uh <laughs> which i know yeah, there are there are it. several of those the comments the um, and um, in terms of sort of MPs' relationship with food and drink, I definitely remember in the height of the, you probably won't appreciate me taking you back to these days, the sort of the Brexit days, uh, the late night votes and the endless hanging about, there was a lot of concern that, you know, I remember someone in the one of the canteens saying they were ordering in more chocolate because people sort of comfort eating all the time. Um, with the un- anti-social hours and the abuse and the hanging about and all that, do you think the MPs do eat particularly well? Do they look after themselves?
3: I mean, some do and some don't. I mean, I've lost four, three stones since I entered the House of Commons 19 years ago. Or wow! Years ago. So I've I've gone in the right direction, but certainly when I got there, I put on quite a lot of weight. <laughs> it's very easy, and that's not so. That's not so much eating with MPs. You get you you get invited to to, to receptions. You get you get invited by various organisations who are hosting events at the House of Commons. External organisations their events. You have to be very careful. Um, what you eat you have to you have to remember that there's no such thing as uh, calories that don't count everything you put in your mouth counts as far as the waistline is concerned and your daily calorie intake is concerned but that but 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 uh, look when i was a researcher there in the early 1990s where late nights were the rigor for um at least three nights a week possibly four i mean an early end on a thursday was midnight and i think the level of eating and, and drinking was was far greater then, as demonstrated by the far higher number of members of Parliament who died while in service, triggering by-elections through through their early demise.
1: And what about alcohol? There's been a bit of a debate about whether or not, you know, does it make sense for alcohol to be available in a workplace? Uh, I spoke to Daniel Greenberg, the Parliamentary Standards Commissioner, last week. He said maybe MPs should think about looking at that, given the concerns about, you know, people's behaviour uh, when they've had a drink. Where where do you stand on the question of of still selling alcohol in Parliament?
3: I've never had a drink um, in Parliament as a Member of Parliament. Um, I don't think it's something I want to do. But uh, there's lots of restaurants there. There's terraces. Thousands of people come and visit for their special evenings, for their award events, to say thank you to long-serving staff. Um, And it would strike me as, as ridiculous to say you can come and um, dine at the House of Commons, but you know, you can't have a glass of wine.
1: What about you know, having a bar, having strangers' bar, and given the stories over the years, you know, punch-ups and allegations mm. of groping or uh, offensive language, can you defend that, having strangers' bar there?
3: Well, it's quite interesting on that. I thought you might ask this question because... Yeah, I'm a great I'm a great champion of responsible drinking, and uh, we were looking at restricting access to strangers bar, so it, it wasn't open to all. And one of the group of people who were most concerned about this were members of the press lobby, um, who lobbied me very heavily not to exclude them, for example, from strangers bar. So it's all very well for people to talk about. Cutting down on alcohol consumption in the House of Commons, till it potentially impacts them, <laughs> and then you get a bit of, and then you get a bit of special pleading. And I, I, I hope you don't mind me tweaking no, your tail on that. Not slightly, at all. Matt, not but, at all. But, I've, but I've, we I've been, been known
1: to go to strangers to have a drink, although I, I can honestly yeah. say, hand on heart, I've never punched anyone as a result.
3: No, neither have I. <laughs> um, but, but you know, people. Um, but you make a very serious point. People need to 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 drink uh, responsibly. Parliament is a place of work. Members of Parliament are employers first and foremost. And I think we should always set good standards and the highest of standards. So I have no objection with people raising these concerns. So I would just say a lot of the problems don't arise from, from members of Parliament, thankfully. A lot of the problems arise bluntly when, when, when people behave badly. And as I said, there are 17,000, 18,000 pass holders in the House of Commons.
1: Just before I let you go, Charles, um, we're doing a food fight every day this week for Food Week. Today is tea or coffee. If you had to choose one or the other, are you a tea man or a coffee man?
3: Uh, coffee coffee okay yeah um, i took all the all the time but only up until
1: midday oh after that was that straight on the beers
3: nothing nothing <laughs> absolutely nothing no, no stimulants after midday because then i don't sleep
1: very good uh, charles walker Conservative mp chairman of the administration committee thanks very much for joining us on times radio thanks and that's all we've got time for on today's episode don't forget to hit subscribe so you can find about food week all the way through the rest of the week but for now for me matt jolly it's goodbye